called him the strong man. And in Matthew 13, verse 29, he said he's our enemy. He's the ruler of this world. John 12 and verse 31 and John 14 and verse 30, the tempter. And Matthew chapter four and verse three, the accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12 and verse 10, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12 and verse nine. And perhaps the way that we would identify him best is the way that we first encounter him in the Bible. And that is he is a murderer and the father of lies. You know, for all of the terminology that the Holy Spirit, all the words that the Holy Spirit chose to muster together and string together throughout the Bible to talk to us about the devil. This one probably stands out the most. But all of the descriptions tell us that he's really against us and doesn't have our best interest at heart. Paul encourages Christians in Ephesians 6 and verse 11 to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil to be prepared for what he'll throw at us and be ready to stand against us. And the thing that he probably does most often is to deceive and to lie to us. Chase read for us a moment ago from John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus doesn't just say that the devil is a liar. That's true. But Jesus says that he's the father of lies, meaning he's the originator of lies. He's the one from which all lies spring forth. And he's been hosting lying seminars ever since to deceive others and train others to be dishonest, just as he is. He lied to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 1 through 5 about their disobedience and what it would ultimately lead to for them. The Bible says he got into the heart of Judas in John 13 and verse 2 and no doubt deceived him about how things would work out when he betrayed Jesus Christ. He antagonized Ananias and Sapphira and it led to them lying to the Holy Spirit and both of them being dead and buried that same night. He's a liar. It's what he does. And he still tells lies today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, do not be ignorant of his devices, but most people are. Most people think about the devil as just a fictional character created by religious teachers to scare all of us and being on our best behavior. Or if you ask most people today who is the devil, they wouldn't describe him as an individual or a person. They would say the devil stands for he's a personification of evil. It just represents the devil represents all that's bad and that's corrupt. And the Bible says, no, the devil is an actual being, a person, the enemy of the human soul. And he wants to tell us lies. God's fortified us through his word with the truth that we might oppose those lies. But we need to appreciate what they are so that we might be able to stand against them. And what I want us to do this morning is to study together and notice some of the lies that the devil still tells. We would like to think maybe that none of these have tripped us up, that we haven't bought into any of these ourselves. But maybe we have. And if we have, the truth of God's word should steer our hearts back Godward so that we might cling to the truth and ultimately not be deceived. Here's number one. Lies the devil wants us to believe is that nobody goes to hell. You know, before it ever was a curse word or a word that people use when they're in shock or disbelief, the word Gehenna, the word that we use for hell in the Bible, it's a word that means the eternal torment, the place of eternal torment when God has finally fulfilled his final judgment on the world. Revelation 20 and verse 10 says that the dragon, the serpent will be cast into the lake of fire and be tormented there forever and ever. Whosoever's name isn't found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, which burns Revelation 20 and verse 15. But the devil would have us to believe. Don't worry about any of those passages. Don't worry about any of that whatsoever, because nobody goes to hell. Nobody. You read from Matthew through Revelation and the word hell, it appears a good number of times, about 12 different times. Eleven of those are on the lips of Jesus. Nobody in the Bible talked about hell more than Jesus. He said some people, because of their disobedience, can escape the condemnation of hell. Matthew 23 and verse 33. 
He said, if your right eye or your right arm offends you, cut it off and cast it away. It'd be better to enter into eternal life maimed than have all of your faculties and members together and be hurled into everlasting hell and torment. Jesus talked about hell, but I don't know if you noticed it. Nobody goes to hell anymore. Christianity Today put out an article in 2021. and In this article, they surveyed 7000 Americans. Seventy two percent of the people they surveyed said they believe in heaven. Sixty two percent said they don't believe in hell. Of the 7000 people they surveyed, of those that said, I'm a Christian, they identify with the Bible as being the word of God and claim to be Christians. Of those 7000, those that claim to be Christians, 40 percent of them said you can go to heaven if you don't believe in God at all. I'm telling you, the devil's working this lie over on a lot of people. Nobody goes to hell. But we didn't need Christianity Today's magazine to tell us this. Just go to any funeral anywhere and just sit still and pay attention long enough. And what you'll find is without context to anybody's relationship to God or the Bible or Jesus Christ or the church without fail. The audience will be comforted by the fact that the departed is surely in a better place, surely in bliss, regardless of how this person has lived, what they believed or what they haven't believed. But Isaiah says there is no peace for the wicked. Isaiah 48 and verse 22. But most people have bought into this lie that nothing bad will happen to you. No matter what you do with God, no matter what you do with the word of God, the Bible with Jesus, all will be well because nobody goes to hell. It's like the man who went to his boss's funeral, the man he had worked with for decades. And he heard his boss being preached into heaven and he sat there alarmed and he said to himself halfway through the funeral, you know, I've worked with this man for decades. And every time he was going to make a trip, he talked about it and made plans. But this trip that this preacher saying that he made to heaven, I've never heard him talk about it, nor did I know of any of his plans. It's his most secretive trip yet. Had no idea he was going there. Jesus says in John 14 and verse three, I go to prepare a place for you and only people who have prepared will go there. The devil says nobody goes to hell, but the truth is Jesus says that some people will. Turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says that there are two directions people are heading in. Matthew 7 and verse 13, entering at the straight gate or the narrow gate, because broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many people are entering in there because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. That's not the will of God, but that is the reality of God's word. Most people are going in the direction away from God. Jesus would warn people to repent. He'd say, repent or you'll also likewise perish. Luke 13, three and five. He'd say he that rejects me and doesn't receive my words has a judge. The words that I've spoken will judge you in the last day. John 12 and verse 48. The devil comes alongside us and says, look, it doesn't matter what you do with your life, how you live it or fail to live it, because in the end, you'll end up with God and glory no matter what you do or don't do. And the Bible says, take pause, because not everybody, not everybody goes to heaven. Now, you might be hearing this first line saying to yourself, you might breathe the sigh of relief. The devil hasn't worked this one over on me. I've never thought this one in my life. I believe the Bible. I understand this. And that's a good thing if that's you. But maybe that's not the case. There's some possibilities. If you have these thoughts running through your mind or maybe these words have come out of your mouth, maybe the devil has snuck this lie into your heart and allowed you to believe it. If you've ever said anything like, look, I'm really not faithful. I'm not a real religious person, but I'm sure I'll be okay because, hey, I'm a good person overall. I've done good things then the devil has fooled you into thinking that you'll be saved based on the way you behave. Paul says it's not based on human merit and works. It's based on God's grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Or maybe you say something like this. You know, she didn't believe in the God of the Bible. But listen, she believed in a higher power and God's grace. I'm sure God's grace will cover it. It'll cover her. But the Bible says salvific grace that saves is only found in Christ Jesus. Second Timothy two and verse one. 
You probably have bought into this life. You've ever said something like this or think this in your mind. Hey, listen, nobody knows for sure. Maybe the Christian way is one of many ways. It's sort of like people in the airport on different airlines. The Christian way is like American Airlines, and that'll get you there. But other religions are just going their way. It's like traveling on spirit or allegiance. The tickets are cheap, no snacks on the plane. They might lose your luggage, but hey, you'll get there in the end. It really doesn't matter. And what all of these statements fail to appreciate is that in the end, only Christians go to heaven. Only those that are in Christ, Acts 4 and verse 12, and somebody says, yes, I am, but God's the judge, not you and not us. And that is absolutely correct. But the God that will judge the world does not say to everyone not guilty. God wants us to realize that not everyone will go. But the devil saying nobody goes to hell. No wonder when Paul often gives those long sin lists in the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 or Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Or Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he'll say people that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he'll follow that up with do not be deceived. It's as if the Holy Spirit anticipated the day when men would come along and say, don't worry about how you live your life. God's going to approve of and accept everybody. But it's just simply not the truth. The Washington Times ran an article in 2021 about how participation trophies are killing American society and culture. I don't know the guy that wrote it, but when you read the article, you can tell he's pretty fired up and upset about it. And I sort of share the same sentiment. He says America used to be different. We used to compete. Hey, there were winners and there were losers. And in that, we learned what we were good at. If you succeeded, you won. And if you lost, well, you lost. And he says what the participation culture, the trophies of the participation trophy culture have given us is this idea where nobody's a loser. And when everybody wins, the reality is everybody's a loser. Nobody tries hard. Everybody's rewarded in the end. He says we've raised up a generation of people that are afraid to tell anybody that they're wrong or that they lost or that they've missed it because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And maybe this participation trophy culture finances the devil's first lie. And he says to those of us in American culture, hey, religion is just like what you see in your culture. You can be rewarded just for showing up. But the Bible says heaven is no participation trophy. God's not going to just reward people for showing up. Surely everybody can win, but only those who choose Jesus Christ and everybody who doesn't is a loser. Acts 13 and verse 46, Paul says, seeing that you thrust the word of God from you and count yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. The only people that win in the end are Christians. And God wants that for everybody. But the Bible also tells us the truth. And the truth is most people won't choose that. But the devil would have us to believe otherwise. Here is lie number two. The pleasures of sin never end. The devil would have us to think if we engage in sin without repenting, if we just live the way that we want, it'll always go our way. It's the first lie he tells Adam and Eve. You remember Genesis three and verse four after he's conversing with Eve, he says, you will not surely die. Listen, you'll rebel against God and do what you want and everything will work out and go your way. After they partake of the fruit and God shows up in Genesis three and verse 13, Eve says he has deceived me. He told us we won't surely die. The serpent deceived me. And when you read in Genesis chapter five, that long list of individuals, the genealogies that are there in Genesis five and verse five, it says Adam lived nine hundred and thirty years. And guess what happened to Adam? And he died because all of the devil's apples have worms. He promises a lot of things, but he always falls short. Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is the role of 
call of faith, the hall of faith chapter. And in this chapter over and over again in Hebrews 11, what we find is God highlighting individuals who lived a life of faith. About verse 23, we're introduced to Moses and we find out about his parents and what they taught him. But then we find out about the kind of person Moses was when he came to age. Hebrews 11 and verse 24 says Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but instead chose to suffer afflictions with the people of God. Notice the end of verse 25. Rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, the ESV has New King James and King James, the pleasures of sin for a time or a season. I love the Bible's honesty. The Bible never lies to you and me about the fact that sin is pleasurable. But the Bible hastens to add, don't ever let anybody tell you that the pleasure will last because it won't. It'll be over in a flash. And what Moses was able to do is say, listen, if I stay in Egypt, I'll have a cushy life, a good life, a prosperous life. But the the pleasure, the pleasures of sin pass quickly and they won't last. Listen to first John two fifteen through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride or the vainglory of life is passing away with his pleasures. But the one that does the will of the father, that individual abides forever. The devil would have us to think sin, live it up, live big. And the pleasures that you enjoy in those moments will never end. You know, people have been riding roller coasters since the 1800s. Some people see that picture and they want to get on one. Some people are like never in a million years. I don't know what camp you're in, but the reality is whatever camp you're in, whether you love roller coasters or hate them, the design behind a roller coaster is to give the participants in about 120 seconds all of the fun, exhilaration and excitement that their hearts can fathom and muster. Whether you love them or hate them, here's the one fact about roller coasters that you can't escape. It'll be over fast. You wait in line, you get in line, in 120 seconds it'll be over. Your hair will be a mess, your heart will be pounding out of your chest, and if you want that thrill again or that dread, you've got to get back in line. Have you ever thought about this? Why isn't it longer? Why just 120 seconds? Why not 120 minutes? That's longer after all, but you probably know why. That speed, those jerks, those turns, those drops, 120 minutes would probably kill you. You wouldn't be able to stand it. The devil says, ride the wave of sin. When you get off, Your life will be a mess. Your heart will be broken. And the pleasure that you did experience, he'll say, if you want more of it, you've got to get back in line. There is a way, Proverbs 14, 12, that seems right to a person. But the end thereof, those are the ways of death. Paul says, what fruit do you have in those things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things are death. Romans 6 and verse 21. It seems like a good idea. It seems like it'll be fun. Seems like it'll be a grand time, but it won't. The pleasures of sin always end, but the devil says they won't. And intuitively and intellectually, we know this, but practically we often miss it. If we ran this through in our minds before we engaged in sin and a lifestyle of darkness, we would often cease before we ever begin. But it's hard. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 23, oh, Lord, I know the way of man's not in himself. It's not a man that walks to direct his own steps. Don't trust yourself. Trust God. But we're often deceived about the pleasures of sin. Go to a drunkard and try to convince him. That what he thinks is just a fun pastime of his own will ultimately lead to the loss of everything for him or everyone. Proverbs 20 and verse one says wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. Whoever's deceived by it isn't wise. Go to somebody who's about to engage in premarital sex and try to convince them 
that though it seems as innocent as test driving a car that you will later purchase, there have been plenty of people before you that have engaged in the very same thing and later experienced shame and sometimes physical consequences. Proverbs 5, 11 through 14. You'll be ashamed, you'll be embarrassed, and your flesh may very well be afflicted. In those moments when we're angry and we feel like the most natural outlet for that anger is to lash out and get somebody told to get it off our chest, we know from experience that those words that are often spoken in bitterness and in anger and in wrath, they can't be taken back. And we often regret the things that we've said. Proverbs 13 and verse three, the devil says, sin, you'll like it, you'll enjoy it. The pleasures will never end. And every time at the end, the fruit of those things, it's not great. It's ruin. Galatians 6 and verse 8 says, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. You'll have to get back in line. And he deceives us. The devil deceives us about the pleasures of sin. The Bible's honest. It says the pleasures of sin are there, but they don't last. And the devil tells us that they'll continue. Here's number three. One of the lies the devil wants us to believe is if we fall, we can't get up. The night that Jesus was going to be betrayed and handed over to the hands of sinners, he prayed for Peter. You remember in Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan's desire to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, strengthen your brothers. The prayer that Jesus prayed for Peter didn't keep Peter from falling. By the way, that wasn't the intent of the prayer. Peter would have to stand on his own. Peter said, I'll never deny you, even if all of these I never will. And you know what happened? He did. He said, I don't know the man. A little girl scared Peter off. Peter began to curse and swear with an oath. I've never met this man before in my life. I don't know that person. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he's walking along the beach with Peter. John 21, three times he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? John 21, 15. And then in 16 and 17, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response, Lord, you know, I love you. Yes, I love you. Grieved in his heart, he says, you know, why do you ask? Jesus asked Peter three times whether or not he loved him in this restoring process, not because Jesus needed to know it, but Peter needed to know that he could fall and love him again and be loved again. Because one of the lies that the devil tells us in our hearts is if you ever fall, you should forget about it. You can't get back up. But God says you can. One of the most important themes throughout the Bible is that God is a God of restoration. Hosea 6 and verse 1 says he tears us that he might heal us. He strikes us down that he might build us up. He promised the people in Joel's day in Joel 2.25, I will restore what the locusts have eaten in the years that you lost in sin. I will give them back. It's who he is. It's what he does. But the devil whispers in our ears and in our hearts, hey, you've blown it. You've gone too far this time. You can never come back. But God says you can. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and in Acts 8, we meet a man by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. He was a magician, a pagan, and a sinful person. But Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel. Acts chapter 8, 12, and 13 says, When they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself also believed, and then he followed along with Philip, seeing the miracles and the signs that were done. Later on, Peter and John go down to Samaria to lay hands on these individuals so that they can receive the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. And when Simon sees it in about verse 19, he says, hey, give me this power that on whoever I lay my hands, they'll receive it. And Peter rebukes him. You remember, Peter says, your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the power of God. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. He doesn't tell Simon you're a terrible Christian. You'll never be saved. In fact, your conversion was a farce. 
His conversion to the time of his falling aren't really separated by that much time. Commentators have said maybe Simon the sorcerer wasn't a genuine Christian. Peter doesn't. Look at verse 22. Peter says, repent and pray that perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven. And in verse 24, Simon says, pray for the Lord to me that the things that you've spoken won't happen to me. What does God tell us through Simon the sorcerer? He says, if you fall. You can come back. The devil says, if you fall, you must never come back. God won't receive you. And the spirit says through the scriptures, yes, he will. Do you know how many Christians right now are on the next Sunday plan? I know I need to be restored. I know I'm out of duty. And if you were to go to them tonight and say, listen, this is what the Bible, they would quote the passages for you and say, I know exactly what I need to do. But next Sunday. You know how many people sit in auditoriums and they know they've lived a life? I'm not talking about sin. We all commit sin. I mean walking and wallowing in darkness and knowing they're living two different ways, and I should probably straighten it out. But next Sunday, I've hurt somebody, and I need to beg their part, and time's running out, and I plan to really get serious this time, but just not now, next Sunday. And the devil knows that one of these days often turns out to be none of these days, and so he's content with our delay. Proverbs 27 and verse one says, don't boast about tomorrow. You have no idea what a day will bring forth. The devil says, if you fall, you can't get up. But God's reaching down his hand saying, I would love to help you do so. Don't you know Judas could have come back if he wanted to? We read the Old Testament and we read the prophecies and Zechariah and all of the passages about Judas is going to fall. Somebody's going to betray the son of man. But if he would have come back, God would have received him. He failed the same night that Peter did and no further than Peter failed. But the message of scripture is God would have received him back if he would have had godly sorrow. Because here's what the devil doesn't want you and me to know. You can't fall too far. You can't run too far from home. You can't do so much wickedness and evil that God will lock the doors on you and refuse to have you if you'll come back to him. But the devil would have us to believe that he will. The Bible says we will make mistakes, but we can get up. First John one and verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But one of the lies the devil wants us to believe is if we've blown it, we've blown it forever. But God does not write your sins in permanent marker. Just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. The righteous man falls down seven times and rises yet again. Proverbs 26 and verse 17. And every one of us of any appreciable age has fallen before. But God will have us back if we'll have him. Chasasun is her name. In 2010, she was 69. I don't know if she's still living, but at 69, she finally got her license. It took her a couple of times to do it. 960 to be exact. She couldn't. Pa- I don't know if they just passed her over time just to say, go ahead. But here's what they tell us. In April of 2005, she had been taking this test over and over again. She couldn't pass it in April of 2005. She said, I'm going to take this test once a day for a week. She did it every day for a week, five times a day, five times a week, all of 2005. And for three years consistently, this is what she did. After that, she went down to about two times a week. And then finally, on the 960th try, I know that doesn't ring as well in our ears as the third time a charm, the 960th times a charm. But what Sassoon did is she didn't quit. She didn't give up. She persisted. She stuck with it. Do you think the DMV is more gracious than God? If they'll give a person 960 tries, how many will God give? He's gracious. He's good. He says, I'll give you another try. But you've got to believe him. You've got to want another chance because the devil will tell you you've run out, that you can't have another chance. But God says you can. 
God forgives and he abundantly pardons Isaiah 55 and verse 7. He'll receive all those that come to him in penitence because his eyes and ears are toward the brokenhearted. Psalm 34 and verse 18. One of the devil's lies is if you fall, you can't get up. Here's number four. God's word is too hard to understand. Go to Genesis chapter three and notice how the devil introduces himself to Eve. God tells them, you remember Genesis two sixteen and 17 of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. What's the first thing the devil does in Genesis chapter three and verse one? Listen, sometimes the Bible is challenged for its truth. Sometimes the devil comes along and says, hey, there are contradictions in the Bible. You can't trust it. It's not true. That's not what this one's about. Though sometimes the devil comes along and says, it's too hard for you. Look at how he tries to confuse Eve in Genesis three and verse one. Has God said that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? Did God say that? Hey, did God really say is how the devil often tries to operate in our lives? Did you really understand what he said? By the way, can anybody understand what he said? One of the ways the devil lies to us is he says the word of God is just too complicated. It's too hard. I don't know if you know this, but most people in America hate math. We just say it. We're not math people. 30% of Americans say they love it, 30% are undecided, and 40% despise math. And this kind of mathematical phobia, it trickles down to kids pretty early on. You'll have a kid in first grade saying, I'm just terrible at math. I'm really no good. Before any challenge, before any effort is made, same thing with languages. We say we can't do it. Everybody can do math. Some people are better at it than others, but everybody, you have to do it in order to survive on varying levels. But we'll just say this. I can't do it. And we say it about the Bible. Leave it to the experts. Revelation, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel. No way. Nobody can understand the Bible. But God says something else. He says the word of God is simple. Psalm 19 and verse 7. He says children can understand parts of it and it can open the eyes of the youth. Psalm 119 and verse 9. From a child, you can know the holy writings, the sacred scriptures, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. Notice Jesus' words in John 8, 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus says you can know the truth and it'll sanctify you and set you apart. And the devil comes along and says, you can't understand the Bible. It's too difficult. It's too hard. It's too challenging. It's got the deepest concepts in the world in it. It's got big ideas, big words. There's a lot of books and a lot of verses. And so you know what you should do. You should just walk away and leave it alone because after all, you just simply can't do it. There are all these interpretations. A lot of people have a lot of ideas about the Bible. You should just give up altogether. Go to Ephesians chapter three and notice what Paul says about the process of revelation, the way we receive it and our ability to comprehend it. Ephesians chapter three and verse three, Paul talks about being an apostle and by revelation, that is God just poured it into Paul and the other apostles. He says, how by revelation was made known to me the mystery. And I wrote it down in a few words. Now, notice verse four. Paul says, whereby when you read, you can understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Verse three, Paul says, I received it by revelation. Verse four, he says, when you read, you can understand it. We don't need human genius or heavenly revelation or illumination. God, make the Bible alive for me so that I can understand it. He did that the first time. We can understand the Bible just as he's given it to us. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. 
He says it's the words not in heaven that you need somebody to climb up and go and get it or across the sea that you need a messenger to bring it back to you in ways you can understand it. It's near you in your heart so that you can understand it and do it. Here are just a few practical things every one of us can do to better understand the Bible. Number one, get a translation of the Bible that you can read and understand. If that's the King James and New King James, fine. But if it's not. Try the NIV, the NLT, try the ESV. Get a translation of the Bible where you're not stumbling over every other word or where you don't need a large print dictionary next to you just to make sense out of evil concupiscence or superfluity of naughtiness. You need to understand what you read. Number two, read it every day. If you take large breaks in between Bible reading, what's probably going to happen is every time you'll have to reintroduce yourself to the context and what's going on in Scripture. The Bereans search the Scriptures every day and no doubt it made them better Bible students as a result. Number three, remember that it takes time. The Bible says grow in grace. We don't jump in grace. It'll take a long time to learn the Bible, but learn it. We can. And then number four, be willing and ready to do what you read. Most of us are educated far beyond our obedience. We know a lot in the Bible and we want to spend a lot of times on the things that we don't know instead of do what you already know. Hebrews five and verse 11 says, I've got many things to say to you and hard to explain. They're hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. You did not hear me say that there's nothing in the Bible that's challenging because that's not true. Even Peter says in Second Peter three and verse 16, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, but he didn't say impossible. And not everything in the Bible is impossible to understand. I want you to know that the Bible was written for you and to you. God wrote the Bible for the Christian and not the critic. God wrote the Bible for students, not for scholars. For practitioners, not for professors. Don't let the devil tell you you can't when God is saying you can. One of the devil's lies is you might as well just close up the Bible. Get all of your spiritual nourishment from the assembly, from guys that have gone to college, guys that know the languages, people that know the Bible better than you. You should give up trying to learn the Bible yourself because he knows it's the sword of the spirit. And the more of it that you get into your heart and life and actually practice, you'll slay him and his devices. And so his tactic is to keep us away from the Bible. He says you can't understand it, but God says you can. Here's number five. The devil wants us to believe that God is keeping good from us. The devil did not try to convince Adam and Eve that God didn't exist. You might imagine why that wouldn't work. Their whole existence was linked to the fact that God created them. But what he does say is your God's not good. Genesis three and verse four, he says, you will not surely die. But go to Genesis three and notice what he says in verse five. After this, it's a challenge not to God's existence. But it's to God's goodness. He says, God knows in the day that you eat thereof of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be wise. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Translation, the devil says, hey, if you do this thing, God knows your life will be good. Your life will be blessed. Your life will be better. And that's the last thing that he wants. One of the lies that the devil wants us to believe is that God is keeping the goods behind his back, that God's deceiving us and he doesn't want us to have things. He told them, if you eat of this fruit, you'll live like never before. They ate of the fruit and died like God never intended. He says, you'll be like God. Listen, God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, I've made you in my own image. They couldn't have been more like God if they wanted to. But he's a liar. That's what he does. This lie may be the fuel behind every single sin that we commit. Our believing of this lie, that our God is somehow keeping good from us. And so we've got to get in the driver's seat of our own lives. Because we know better than God. If God were really good, God would give me X. Or if God were really good, God would answer my prayer in this way. 
If the God I serve knew what he was doing, he would work out things in such a way that I end up in this position. And all of those statements amount to us saying to God, unbuckle your seatbelt and get in the back seat. Because either you are not a good God capable of doing what you promised or you are good, but too wicked to give me what I know I deserve. And James 1.17 says every good and every perfect gift comes down from above. The Bible doesn't just say that God gives good. It says that he is good by his very nature. Psalm 25 and verse 8 says good and upright is the Lord and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God gives good gifts so that we might enjoy them. First Timothy 617. He gives good to those that follow him and the soul that trust in him. Lamentations 325. We've got to sniff out and snuff out this lie that our wandering hearts want to believe that we would do it better than God because we're smarter than him. The devil says, you know what's best. Your life is going to be better if you just fire God and do things your own way. You know what's best for you. You know what you need better than God does. And your God is actually keeping good from you. If you could just break loose of his laws and of his rules and his commandments, your life will be better. God knows in the day you eat of this, your life's going to be grand. And God doesn't want that for you. The devil wants us to believe the lie that we serve a God who's selfish or who's sneaky, who has good but won't give it to us, who promises us some of it but keeps back the best parts for himself. But the Bible describes God as fully lavishing out good on us. God doesn't just give us what's good. He always gives us the very best, whether we acknowledge that or not. Psalm 145 and verse 17 says all of the Lord's works are righteousness and he does kind to all in the earth. All of the Lord's works are righteous. God has never made a bad decision. There's never been anything that we desire that God chose otherwise on that we could say God should have chose this and he was wrong about it. He's always right. But the devil wants us to believe that we serve a God that wants to keep good from us. And our belief in this lie cripples everything about our Christian service, because we will not give 100 percent to a God that we can't trust 100 percent. You won't live fully for God that you don't know that you can really trust him to see you all the way through. Is he really good? Is he kind? The devil's lie that he works over on people is not merely that God doesn't exist, but that God's not good. And because he's not good, he's unworthy of our service. Here's number six. That worship is optional. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter four, he overcame him with scripture three different times, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And in the final temptation, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 613. And he says, you'll worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil wants us to believe that worship is optional, but really worship is an obligation. You know, atheists are confused about this. They've never gone anywhere in the world. Even the evolutionists that say we're just here by accidental things in the world that didn't have us in mind by eternal matter. They're frustrated by one phenomenon. They've never gone anywhere and they will never go anywhere where people aren't somewhere worshiping someone or something. They can't figure it out that humans are just worshipful by nature. Dawkins says you human beings are incurably religious. It's as if we were just wired to worship and we are. People say, well, I won't worship God. Well, if you don't, you'll worship someone or something because we were made to worship. You were made to bow and bow. You will. And so will I. The only question is before whom or before what? Moses told ancient Israel in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20, worship the Lord your God and serve him and hold his name in reverence and by it swear alone. The devil says worship is optional, but God says it's a mandate. Paul walked into Athens in the market there and he says, I see that you all are very superstitious. I passed by and I saw all of your devotions of worship and you even had one to the unknown God. That's the God that I declare to you. 
Paul says you're worshiping the wrong thing. Don't just give your worship away. You were made to worship, but direct it in the right way because the devil says, hey, worship is optional. Worship God or be free and worship nothing. People leave Christianity sometimes and they say, I don't need worship anymore. I don't need to worship God anymore. I'm fully sustained and satisfied by myself. But they will worship something or someone because everybody worships. It's just a matter of what. Psalm 96 and verse 9 says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him all the earth. The Bible is saying direct your worship to the only one who's worthy of it, the one who created us, informed us and fashioned us because he's the only one worthy to receive it. And here's the last one. Number seven. The devil wants us to believe that this life is really all there is. This lie works on people that are righteous and people that are wicked, people that are religious and people that are not. People whose lives are going great and people whose lives right now are going terribly. This lie from the devil. This is what he wants us to believe, that this life, our current existence, is really all that there is. For people whose lives are going great, the devil says, hey, soak it up and drink deeply because you'll never see this life again. You'll never know this amount of joy again. But Jesus says, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust do corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But then people that are suffering mightily and life is not going their way at all. We might become over invested in our hardship and the devil whispers when this life is over, it's over. Your life's going terrible. And when you die, there'll be a period and that'll be it. But notice Paul's words in Second Corinthians four and verse 16. He says, even though we suffer, we do not lose heart because though our outward man is wasting away, our inward man is being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. The devil says this life is really all that you've got to look forward to. If things are going your way, great. If they're not, it'll never improve. But the Bible's saying you were made for eternity. Humans have this innate desire to live, to continue to exist, to fight against death. And it's because of Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity into your heart. We were made to live forever. God is from everlasting to everlasting. But everybody who has ever been born is to everlasting. You will never cease to exist whenever and however your life ends and my life ends. We will continue to exist in either one of two places. No wonder Jesus was always talking to people about eternity, about their souls. Marvel not at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And the devil says, you don't have time for this. You try to engage people in spiritual conversation. They're too busy. They don't have time. Life's going great at another time, maybe in another place, because this life is really all there is. It's like a child telling their parents, I've got to go outside and play. I don't have time to do my homework. The devil says, hey, you've got a lot of things to do. You don't have time to do your soul work. Don't worry about your soul. Don't worry about your life. This life is really all there is. Moody got it right when he said one of these days you'll wake up and read in the paper that D.L. Moody of Northeast Ridge is dead. But don't believe them. Because in that moment, I'll be more alive than I've ever been before. He says, I'll have a new body that death can't touch and that sin can't taint. I'll have a glorious body just like his glorious body. One day they'll say we're dead. But if we know the truth and we believe Jesus, we really will be more alive than we've ever been before. Listen to Paul. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await the coming of our Savior who will transform these lowly bodies And they'll be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the power by which he's able to subdue all things to himself. This life, don't live like there's no tomorrow. 
live like there is an eternity because God says that there is. The devil tells us lies and he would love to deceive us. Jesus doesn't just tell us the truth. The Bible says in John 14 and verse six, he is the truth. Believe the truth that comes from Jesus, the truth about our current existence and that we will either be in heaven or in hell with God. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Only those who respond faithfully to the gospel. Reject the temporary pleasures of the world and appreciate that the pleasures of God never end. You were made to worship and we will worship something. Don't give away your worship to lesser things. Instead, worship God now and then you'll be able to do so in eternity. That will go on forever and ever. Receive the truth that Jesus is the son of God and that you need to respond to him in faith, turning away from your sins and repentance, confessing with the mouth what the heart believes and being immersed in water. Baptism to have your sins forgiven. Doesn't matter how far you've fallen. Doesn't matter what you've done or how much of it you've done. The devil says you can't get up. God says you can rise from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. Ken's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If we can help you or encourage you with first time obedience to the gospel or with prayers and restoration or just for help through discouragement or anything, why don't you come right now as we stand together and as we sing?